0: This is Ask Lisa, a podcast to help people understand the psychology of parenting. Psychologist Dr. Lisa Damore, author of two New York Times best-selling parenting books, takes your questions. And I'm co-host Rena Ninen, a journalist and mom of two. Some of what we talk about comes from raising children ourselves. Most of the time, I'll be getting answers to your parenting questions. So send your questions to Ask Lisa at drlisaDamore.com. Episode 107, Lisa's new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. Okay, I can't tell you. This is the episode of the season that I have been waiting to do. It's your new book. This is my advanced (laughs) copy that I was lucky enough to get early on. But um, I am so excited for you and for the world, my friend. You have been working so hard on this and it's here. How do you feel? Is it like giving birth? It kind of is actually. I mean, it's out today, and it's very funny. Um, it's my third book
1: for broad audiences, and you do feel about your books the way you feel about your kids—like you don't have a favorite; you love them all. They're all special in their way. It's wonderful to have
0: one come into the world. So, yeah, it's actually a lot like having a baby. Oh, that's so funny. So, I—you I, have been working so hard. Last year, you were feverishly mm. putting it together, doing the research, and what I love. My favorite thing about all your books is it's not like, mm, this is what I kind of think. You are grounded in science and research and real everyday clinical episodes of things that have happened that you've seen over two decades, more than two decades. It's true. Like I
1: can't believe I get to sit in this space where I um, I sort of feel like I have a three-legged stool that I get to work from, you know, one is the research science of the field, one is my work with parents, and one is my work with teenagers. Mm. And, and getting to work across those and integrate them into a book is one of my favorite things to do. And one thing that people will notice if they get the book is that it looks thicker, this sounds strange to say, than it is. Because the book itself, the text of the book clocks mm. in at under 200 pages. It's not an overwhelming book. But it then goes on for 50 more pages of notes. Yes, (laughs) which is great to have, though. I love it. And I also love the way in which if people want to know more about the studies that I'm citing or want to see what actually amounts to a pretty detailed interaction that I often have with clinical and research colleagues in the notes about why I made this argument in this particular way, if people are interested in that, it is all there. And if they're not interested in that, they can just leave it aside. Yeah. But I really love the way that we can use notes in a book like mine to have it both be what I hope is a very readable, accessible text. And then if people are very curious or want to know more about what I'm grounding it in, that that's all in the book too.
0: What I love is you use your years of work in your office talking to teens and you weave them in you've obviously protected the identity so no one would ever be able to tell and change names. But hearing that and then the way you weave in the research and what you're seeing and the trends, which was also interesting because you put it into context.
1: Yes, this is an interesting it was an interesting time to write a book about the emotional lives of teenagers because there's no question that a big inspiration for the book was the pandemic mm-hmm. and was what our teenagers went through and how hard it was on teenagers. But then, you know, I don't want to write a pandemic book. You know, I I hope that this really feels like it's in the rearview mirror and more and more so all the time. But what I hope the book does is really grounds us back in what we know about mental health and adolescents, how we maintain it for them, how we support them in maintaining it, when to worry. You know, I think so much of my work is around trying to reassure parents that what you're seeing with your teenager, even if it's intense and sometimes a lot of friction and very uncomfortable. I really so much of that is normal to adolescents, and so what I have found that is that a very a way that I can convincingly reassure parents that what they're looking at is typical is to be very clear about where the line is mm-hmm. and when it is time to be concerned. Because I think that's really how I always want to know. Like if I'm if I have a medical concern, I would want, want someone to say you don't have to worry until X, and then if yes. X doesn't arrive, I'm good to go.
0: So I try to provide that to my readers as much as I can. Mm the emotional lives of teenagers. I love that title because it tells you exactly what this book is about. Why this topic and why now? So it was actually two things. So one was the pandemic,
1: the rise of distress in teenagers everywhere. But I would say as much if not more powerful than the pandemic was a growing misunderstanding about what mental health really is in anyone, much less teenagers. And what I mean by that Rena is I have watched bluntly the wellness industry shape how we talk about mental health. And what I mean by that is we have arrived as a culture at a very bad definition of mental health, which is that you know you're mentally healthy if you feel good or calm or relaxed. And I I just can tell you like no one in my field would be in agreement with that definition. And it's actually a really problematic definition because what it means is if you start the day feeling good and then something Awful happens or unpleasant happens, and you feel lousy, now you're worried about your mental health as totally. opposed to the fact that you're just having a very bad day. Yeah. So the main, the, the two main forces that got me to sit down and basically not get up for months on end to write this book. One was the pandemic, and the other was that I wanted to make sure we got a very clear understanding of what mental health is, and that is that. Teenagers, and actually people of any age, have feelings that fit the moment they're in, they make sense in their context, and that they are managing those feelings effectively. So they can actually be quite distressed, and that may be totally natural to adolescents. What we're looking at is if they're handling those feelings in ways that bring relief and do no harm, or in ways that bring relief but actually come at a
0: cost. I think that's also one of the takeaways from this book was about how teaching our kids that being in distress and sometimes can be an appropriate feeling or emotion, and we're constantly trying to tell them, No, 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 no you, don't, you don't want to feel that way, you don't want to feel that way, but you can lean into it and you can also get up from it. Absolutely. That you know, I mean, if your kid messes
1: up a test that they didn't study for and they feel mad at themselves and unhappy with the grade, you know, those are both extremely unpleasant feelings. Those are going to help your kid grow, mm-hmm. those are going to help your kid do, you know, they don't, if they don't want to feel that way again, they're going to change their behavior, and so. I think as parents, you know, we so often I feel like we're linebackers trying to keep negative feelings away from our quarterback kid, you know, whereas (laughs) I think I think what we really want to appreciate is sometimes getting knocked down Mm -hmm. really clarifies for kids how they want to be in the world, what they want to do differently. They have to have moments that are quite uncomfortable to grow and to learn. And our job as adults is to have strategies to support them through it, not try to prevent
0: them that from happening. And what I love, it's a great reminder for adults that you're not always supposed to feel up too, you know, that we feel the burden of caretaking and always having to be happy and enough. But, but hearing you say that was really remarkable. Lisa, I want to turn sort of to COVID as we're emerging out of COVID. I'm just curious, what do you think has changed or has anything changed in teen behavior and development as we move on past COVID? And is there anything you can definitively say, yeah, that's forever changed in child development?
1: Oh man, what an important question. Okay. So let me take this in a couple ways. First of all, I would say a great percentage of teenagers are back to business, right? Back on the natural trajectories of adolescence, functioning just the way. I mean, this is the real value of having practiced so long before the mm-hmm. pandemic, is I have a very solid baseline for what I should be seeing in teenagers. So I would say a lot of teenagers are operating exactly as we would expect they would and marching forward in all good health. Okay, but for them, here's what's really interesting. Normal adolescent development is a bumpy road. Yes, and it always has been. Yeah. And so what I am seeing, even for kids where I have zero concerns or who seem very much on the normal trajectory, what I'm seeing is that their parents are unduly anxious. Oh, because the pandemic number 1 rocked our world and number 2 has given rise to daily headlines. About adolescent mental health concerns. And my huge beef, Rina, is that so many of these headlines make no distinction between typical adolescent distress and an adolescent mental health concern. So, one thing I will say, and this is a big part of why I wrote this book, is that post pandemic, I'm caring for a lot of parents who are describing to me typical adolescent development as I've ever and always seen it with all of its ups and downs and with all of its emotional disruption. And they are really scared because they aren't sure if what they are looking at is normal and expectable or a sign of concern in the wake of the pandemic. I think the pandemic really jostled our sense of what the norms were, Mm -hmm. really changed our, you know, we lost our baselines for what Mm -hmm. to expect. Okay, so there's that. Then there are also kids who do suffer from ramifications of the pandemic. And I will say, the main form I see of this, I mean, there's a million versions that are individual to specific people, but the main form is the default use of avoidance to manage distress. That when not they doing are attempts, not doing something, not going to school, um, the data, Rena, on kids not going to school post-pandemic, we have never seen anything like this.
0: Ever so, this isn't a one-off. I think if your child isn't experiencing this and they're going to school and they're happy to be in school, you don't think this is a big deal. But you are saying you are looking at the research and you are seeing numbers of children who just can't rejoin society again. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, they're just not showing up for school. And and there's you know
1: when you look when you break this down socioeconomically, there are different explanations at different you know. Points at the socioeconomic spectrum, but it does not actually matter who you're talking to. You can talk to some of the wealthiest districts and some of the most impoverished districts, and those superintendents will tell you that their numbers of school avoidance or truancy or absence, you know, chronic absenteeism, it gets called a lot of different things. These have like doubled and tripled post pandemic, and they haven't, they're not correcting. Wow. And so one of the things that I work really hard in this book to help parents with, is to make a distinction between kids being uncomfortable or being in a situation that's unmanageable. Because sometimes kids are mashing those two together and they're saying, if it's uncomfortable, I can't do it. I'm staying home or I'm not going to do that thing. I'm going to use avoidance. And if things are, it sounds minimizing and I don't mean it in this way, if things are merely uncomfortable, if it's not unmanageable, but if it's merely uncomfortable, this book comes with two entire chapters of strategies to help kids manage uncomfortable situations so that they can move forward into and through
0: them. You just took my tease going into the break, Lisa. <laughs> the, the one thing, if there's one thing that you, or there's one reason that you should purchase this book, it's the strategies. I learned so much about the things that we can say and pivot to that keeps you kind of on neutral footing but keeps them rethinking without feeding into the emotional moment. I thought those were so good because there's such takeaways in each chapter of how you can respond and I learned so much. You know, as a parent, I'm I'm actually implementing some of these strategies already, so I love that. We are going to pause Lisa for a second. Take a quick break. Um and on the other side, I want to talk about what I found so fascinating that you said about dads. There's a lot of information about research on dads. I want to take that up with you when we come back on the other side of the break. You're listening to Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. I love doing laundry now because of EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze are these eco sheets that look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless, so you don't have that drippy goo from plastic jugs. EarthBreeze is really tough on stains, even odors. And if you've got teens, you know about those odors dermatologists tested hypoallergenic and also free of bleach dyes and parabens fragrance free option is also there for anyone who wants it so what Earthbreeze did was they got rid of the unnecessary chemicals for a formula that's kind to sensitive skin of all ages and that includes babies And I love that I just order online and the shipment comes right to my door when I need it. So right now, our listeners at Ask Lisa can receive 40% off of Earth Breeze. That's right, 40% off just by going to earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. That's earthbreeze.com slash asklisa to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and get your 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. Did you know that most bedding is made with harsh chemicals, like
1: formaldehyde, synthetic pesticides, and toxic dyes? Luckily, one company is changing this standard for good. Bolland Branch Sheets, which you know I love, uses the rarest 100% organic cotton that's traceable from family farm to your family home. I have had my Bolland Branch Sheets for a while now, and I love them. They feel like butter. In fact, I am so used to them now that when I travel, as I often do for work, I take my Bolin Branch pillowcase with me and I put it on the pillow in the hotel room so I can enjoy that softness at least on my face, even when I'm not sleeping in my own bed. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bolin Branch. Get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code ASKLISA at BowlinBranch.com. That's Boland Branch, B O L L A N D Branch.com.
0: Promo code ASK LISA. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. We are talking about Lisa's new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. I, um, I'm not raving about this because you're my friend and my beloved girlfriend and <laughs> counselor and wise sage. I, I love this because there are tangible things in here. Like I was saying, that every parent can use strategies. And it's such an easy read, guys. It is such an easy read. Um, and by the way, Lisa taped an audiobook in her own I voice did. that's available now, right?
1: Yep, it's all out today. They publish both the print and the audio simultaneously. And um, I love doing the audiobook, actually. And I feel like there's a whole other layer of utility I can add if I can do it in my own voice by tone. But whatever works for people, if they're interested in buying this book, I want them to do what works best for them.
0: Well, I've got both because I've got the book and then also download. <laughs> you've got to download it because for the car or doing your walks, it's just helpful, I think, to hear some things being reinforced. But, you know, one of the biggest surprises to me was how you really talk about the importance of dads, of of talking about their emotions. It was just so impactful hearing this uh, from you because you talk about the research. What is it that you found about dads talking about emotions that can be so transformative for children?
1: So this was so...
0: You know, you know, I'm just a nerd. Right you now. are and like any yeah. chance. You, you're any grounded chance. in research and studies. You don't just say, "Oh, this is what I think today." You know, because of one experience with my child, you really look yeah. at the research. And I love it. And so, the second chapter of this book is called "Gender
1: and Emotion." And people who followed my work know that prior to this, my book-length work has centered on girls and. So this is my first all genders book, though, you know, obviously our podcast addresses all genders and my work in the New York Times has for a long time as well. But I sat down to that chapter and just really pulled all the research I could find on how gender influences the experience of emotion, the experience and expression of it. And one thing that was not new to me and won't be new to our listeners is that girls are as a group Socialized to talk about feelings far more than boys are, you know, that it's, it's very much, you know, typical to raising a, a, you know, a girl that, that we talk with her about feelings. We expect her to talk about feelings. She gets together with her girlfriends. They talk about feelings and we know that boys just do this less. We talk with them about emotions less. And then we, you know, then they talk with one another about emotions less and they become less capable in that way. And so that I knew, but what, became clear to me as I was working through the research is that the solution that people so often seek, and I'll tell you exactly how this goes down, is that moms are saying to me, how do I get my son to talk about his feelings? He, do- he doesn't talk about his feelings. The solution we so often seek, which is bluntly that the mom who in most homes that are heterosexual homes or two-parent homes that are heterosexual, they're the ones who are doing the emotional work at home. They're the ones asking about feelings because, again, in that gendered pattern, women are trained to do this. What I What became very clear to me from the research is that if the mother is the only one talking about and asking about feelings, it actually entrenches the problem for boys. And here's what I mean. The problem for boys, in addition to not having the fluency because of just how they're socialized, Is it somewhere around fifth or sixth grade, they start to get very, very um, oriented towards like, what's a girl thing to do and what's a boy thing to do, right? And of course, I'm talking about very conventional gender dynamics here. And They quickly decide that talking about feelings is a girl thing to do. And so for boys who are really trying to establish their sense of masculinity, it's off the table. So then when they come home and their mom is the only one saying, let's talk about your feelings, it actually proves their point. Like, this is a girl thing to do. I'm not doing it. So if we really want boys to talk about feelings, which we do, it has to be. The men in their lives who step up and who say, tell me how you're feeling, buddy, or let me tell you how I'm feeling today, that has to happen. Anything else may actually exacerbate the very
0: problem it is trying to solve. Mm. So you're saying the men in their lives. So if you are a single parent, I'm a mom, but I feel good that I'm talking to my son about feelings. You say it's still really important to... Find that male figure who might be in his life somewhere to talk about feelings.
1: Individual families, everyone's going to sort it out in their own way. So, you know I, I, you know, I know plenty of families with two moms or two dads where their kids are thriving, you know, or yeah. single parents where their kids are thriving in their emotional um, fluency. But in super broad strokes, regardless of the configuration of your home, but maybe especially if you're talking about a single parent who's a woman. You want other men around getting boys talking about their feelings. And this can be uncles and coaches mm-hmm. and neighbors and bosses. And, you know, like there's a huge array of people who are available to do this. Mm. And um, I'm not saying if you're a woman, don't ask
0: your son yeah, about his course. feelings. But i like, saying that there's, you know, there's impact. You know, it, it, there's a difference. Yeah, You've seen the research.
1: It really matters mm. that men do this work. It really matters that men
0: do this work. I want to get back to a little bit about when teens experience emotional distress. You talk about that quite a bit in the book. When they do, what really works? What helps? What should parents keep in mind? So the book itself gets very deeply
1: into this question of how we help kids. The term we use is regulate emotions, Mm -hmm. right? So if we can't keep kids from having distress, which we can't, and if we can't get rid of it right away, which we can't, what we do in its place is to regulate emotions. And there's a lot of strategies for that. And so I have two entire chapters on the regulation of emotion. And I think the thing that people may be surprised when they come across these chapters is that I have put on equal footing, given a chapter to each, regulating emotions by expressing them, talking about them, as kids say, getting them out, and regulating emotions by bringing them back under control.
0: Mm.
1: And, And what I mean by that is helping kids or watching, supporting kids as they comfort themselves or find a distraction or turn towards problem solving, maybe not talk about the feeling so much. And I think... The reason it may come as a surprise is that we very much at this point in our culture default to the idea that if my kid is upset, the number one and perhaps sole solution is I get them to talk to me about what they're feeling. And we talk about it, talk about it, talk about it till it's gone. And I will tell you, Rena, when I was enormously pregnant with my older daughter, the one who's now in college, so this is now like 20 years ago. Um, and I was, a, you know, quite a young clinician at that point. I was um, about to go deliver her; like it was like a week before I, her delivery. And I was wrapping up a meeting with a senior colleague, and um, and I think you know we knew we wouldn't see each other until after I'd had my baby. And and she said to me after the meeting ended, she said, "So, um, do you want to hear how psychologists mess up their kids?" <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> "Yes, <laughs> yes," because I have seen those kids. This is going to be good. <laughs> yeah, and she said they talk about feelings too much. Oh. Yeah. That when the kid is having a meltdown, they are just excavating, excavating, asking and asking. And she said, there comes a point where it's really helpful to say, okay, you've been upset for a while. Let's figure out what's going to help you feel better. Right. They're reining it back in. And Rena, what I will tell you is I feel like in the intervening 20 years the whole culture has moved into the bad psychologist parent mode, right? Of like everything gets discussed and talked to death. So there is a place for getting kids talking about it feelings. And I have an entire chapter mm-hmm. on helping kids express emotions, either verbally or nonverbally. But there is also an entire chapter
0: on strategies to help kids get their feelings back under control. That is so fascinating about the psychologist. Like uh, you know, talking too much about your emotions cannot can be unproductive.
1: It can, and the term we have a term for it. We call it rumination, Uh. right? Which is the technical term in psychology for where you are, you know, picking at an emotional wound. Basically, like the more you talk about it, the worse you feel, as opposed to taking another tack. And so, I'm very explicit in the book about when talking is a great strategy, and also when to know if it stopped working and it's time to actually
0: switch gears. Mm. I love it. Um, I I just think there are so many. I'm I'm going through this book right now just to look at the table of contents to tell you guys the different things the, the myths of getting past um adolescent emotions like th- just a basic one on one on this um managing emotions and and regaining emotional control i i just the seismic shift how adolescence puts a new emotional spin on everyday life it's just such a um to me a bible is what i feel like oh. it is because it explains and decodes what kids are going through i mean you even talk about what Actually, happens in the brain as some of these emotions are going on, which no one has ever explained that to me. I mean, when you're handed a child, someone should say you're not going to understand this, but when they get to their teen years, here's what's happening inside their head.
1: It's quite remarkable, Rena. I mean, it's a massive renovation, and it kicks off with puberty, and puberty kicks off. You know, by ten or eleven, even if you can't see the outward signs, things are shifting and changing inside, and it overhauls who your kid is. And and I think we know this and we don't, right? Like we can easily say, yeah, no, 10-year-olds have very little in common with 17-year-olds. But at the same time, when we're bearing witness to this pretty dramatic transformation, it's very unsettling. And so I really do try to map out how the brain changes. And what this means, I'll say it bluntly, in your kitchen is how I feel about (laughs) it, right? You're like, it means your kid is having a lot of meltdowns. It means that you're not always able to have productive conversations when they're upset. It means that they can be impulsive in ways that won't be true at other points in life. And so you know me, like I try to both offer an explanation and offer a series of strategies. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing, Reena, like I really, the longer I practice. The more humble I am about what's going to work in any one home, right? You know your kid, you know yourself, you know the context. And so I find myself more and more when people ask me questions or when I'm writing, they say, How do I do this? I'll say, Well, let me give you three or four options because you're going to need them either with the same kid in different contexts or I may say something that is totally not going to work for you or your kid. And that's fine. I just feel like my goal in all of my work, and then especially in this book, is to hand people a giant toolkit and mm-hmm. just say, here's a bunch of tools yeah,
0: and um, see if, see which one's going to work for you on a given day. That's it. It's a toolkit that you literally hand over in, with this book um, on, on how to really raise these children. And you're meeting us in the moment as we're talking about emerging out of this pandemic and what we've lost, being honest about that, and, and where child development is going. So I'm so grateful. What is it, Lisa, that you hope parents will take away from this book.
1: I feel pretty clear about what it, what I really want the the walk away to be for families. And I would say number one, it's a few things. Number one, it's okay for your kid to be in distress. There are times when we worry, but those are comparatively rare in the day in day out. You should expect a fair bit of distress in your teenager. Like, I think that's a, something that we just need to reestablish post pandemic I think second, I want parents to know you can't prevent that, right? And actually, don't even always want to. Mm-hmm. Often, you don't want to. Mm-hmm. And then finally, what you can do is support regulation. And that's what this book at the end of the day is really about, is helping kids regulate emotions in really healthy ways so that they can be calm, connected, capable, and compassionate people.
0: I love it. And um, I don't know how people are gonna choose to read this, but I literally have written so many notes in the <laughs> margins to go back and and make sort of a little cheat sheet for for myself on on just some of the strategies and and just reminding myself of the research that mm. you know I'm not just doing this willy-nilly. And sometimes you're you do things because your parents did it one way or you're conditioned to believe it to be because of your social settings. But I um am just I shouldn't be amazed because I know how much research and effort you put into you know writing this during this that time period, but I'm blown away by all of the oh, stats nice. and and how mm. thoroughly this is researched. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a journalist, so so I like facts and and things down the middle, and um, it's really a brilliant book. Congratulations, my friend! Oh, I'm so Reena, proud of you. That means
1: you have no idea what it means to me, and I just. You know, I, I can't believe I get up every day. I'm like, I can't believe this is my job. I can't believe we get to help people the way we get to, yeah. or try at least. You yeah. know, it's, it's like, what
0: a what a gift um, for us to get to do this. Democratizing mental health access. That's always been our goal of this podcast. Well, Lisa, what do you have for us for Parenting to Go? What I would say for Parenting to Go is that
1: I don't know that I've ever seen a harder time to be or raise a teenager. I just, I've practiced, you know, I'm pushing 30 years, Rena. Like, I've really seen a lot. And I think this is a very harrowing time with headlines that are scary and worries about the future. And so, what I would say for parenting to go is you're not in this alone. There's so much we can do. And I would say the number one reason of all the reasons we've talked about for why I wrote this book is that when I think about adolescent mental health and how we support it, occasionally it's going to be clinical professionals who need to be called in. Overwhelmingly, the way that we support adolescent mental health is by building very strong relationships between teenagers and the adults right around them. And really, ideally, that's going to be their parents. And if not, There's other adults who can step in, but this is a book that's really designed to build those strong relationships because that's how we support adolescent mental
0: health. Well, you detail how to lay that brick by brick. So I'm so grateful for this. And it's such a great read and an easy read and accessible. So thank you for that. Um. Congratulations, Lisa. The emotional lives of teenagers: raising connected, capable, and compassionate adolescents by Dr. Lisa Damore. Out today. Please go get it. You're gonna love it, and send it to a friend too. I think this is this is actually a great housewarming gift, uh, birthday gift. Uh, it really changed my life, and and I used to, you know, I used to have stacks of your of Untangled that I would literally hand out to people. I had it in my office, and. Uh, I just, when you find a book that really speaks to your soul and helps you, you want to tell everyone. So congratulations, my friend. Oh, thank you, Rena. So next week, we're going to talk about how do you help your disorganized team get it together? I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com. We'll see you next week. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone you'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash Marathon.